So picking up from last week, I'm going to do a quick recap of what we learned um, about Machen, the background to uh, the book um, during that time period. With, we're talking 1920s. Uh, specifically, the book was published in 1923 and um, leading into the 1930s uh, with the founding of the OPC and uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, so just... The, the major question we ask when we approach a study like this is we ask ourselves, why study uh, somebody from the past, uh, specifically a pastor or a teacher who had an important role in church history? Well, it's the fulfilling of Ephesians chapter 4, all right? Uh, Ephesians 4, where it says that God gave men gifts, and those gifts are the teachers themselves, and those teachers were given to the church to teach us. And, um, and this, this is not um, conducive to, say, modern-day evangelicalism that says, all I need is my Bible. I don't need the church. I don't need anybody else. But when they do that, they're actually being disobedient to Scripture when they say these sorts of things. Uh, and they don't even realize it. Ephesians 4 binds us to our teachers who have gone before us. And, and Machen, though he was imperfect, he was one of those important teachers. Uh, he was imperfect, for sure. He had flaws. Um, but he wasn't a heretic. He was an actual teacher, ordained minister of the gospel. And it would be important for us to listen uh, to what he had to say and what he was warning us about a hundred years ago. Uh, so to summarize uh, some of what we learned last week, we're going to cover some of Machen's views quickly. And kind of the quirkiness of Machen, as, um, as Daryl Hart speaks of in his book, Defending the Faith. I recommend this to everyone. Um, it's a pretty heavy read, but it has a lot of history. What was going on during the controversy uh, between the fundamentalists and the modernists, and who were the leading voices, and how Machen was actually not so much a fundamentalist. He was a voice for them, but he was not when it came to actual practice. Um, and this attracted the attention of even his opponents. So even his opponents would show high respect for him. Pearl Buck, for instance, um, who was uh, a liberal herself, showed high re regard for Machen after he died. And uh, the famous um, journalist, H.L. Mencken, uh, of, the, of the 20s, yeah, I believe he was an atheist, um, and he... He balked at fundamentalism. He did not, he was not a fan. And he always critiqued uh, Protestants in America. But he had high respect for Machen um, because Machen wasn't a legalist uh, the way the fundamentalists were. So uh, listen to these, um, what Daryl Hart says, you know, Machen's quirkiness, right, in, in his views. Uh, and it's a list here. In the Presbyterian Church, Machen wanted to enforce strictly the details of Calvinist orthodoxy, yet in society he was an ardent libertarian who opposed the efforts of government to impose anything. Right? This is what I said last week. The church is governed differently than society. The church, we do not allow false teaching or, or liberalism to be taught from the pulpit. But liberals have rights in society. Right? We're, we're not tyrants or dictators. Um, his published writings defended the historical reliability of the New Testament. 
yet Machen also championed the methods of modern biblical scholarship. Uh, one thing I probably didn't mention last week was that his seminary education was, um, specifically his doctorate education, was in Germany, and he learned under liberals, right? Most of his professors were liberals in Germany. So he wasn't anti-intellectual, um, and he was not inf- afraid to engage with things that would challenge his views, or, you know, he held to some kind of intellectual integrity. His learning was very broad, right? Unlike uh, many modern-day evangelicals who kind of um, look down on an educated ministry. Uh, that, that was a Machen, and that set the tone uh, as, I, as I said, it's important to learn Machen because then you learn a lot about the OPC. The OPC prides itself on having, having an educated ministry, making sure our ministers are uh, trained, properly trained. Uh, he opposed the secularization of life in America, yet he did not oppose the teaching of evolution, specifically in public schools. Um, and what, it, what he's saying here is not that he supported the teaching of evolution, but he didn't make it a big deal the way fundamentalists made it, made it a big deal in the 20s and 30s. That wasn't his major gripe against the modernists, right? Um, he railed against the biblical scholarship of mainstream Protestantism, yet published with an established New York firm a grammar of New Testament Greek that was used widely at the institutions of his religious foes. We actually used his New Testament Greek uh, as our main textbook in, in seminary. I think the last year they used it was the year uh, I left. Um, so it was u- used for close to 100 years uh, as the um, uh, major textbook for Greek. Uh, like conventional fundamentalists, Machen opposed the growth of the federal government, but very much unlike his fellow fundamentalists, he attacked prohibition. Uh, from what I know, I, I don't know if he drank on occasion, but he was, he was a teetotaler, he didn't drink, but he didn't see anything wrong with, with uh, those around him uh, to drink alcohol, uh, moderately. Uh, obviously, he was opposed to drunkenness. Uh, like later fundamentalists, Machen advocated private Christian schools, yet unlike many later fundamentalists, he opposed Bible reading and prayer in public schools. Um, we talked extensively about that last week. Uh, it's pretty much why are you giving uh, the keys of the kingdom to the state when it belongs to the church, right? Why allow someone to read the Bible whom you don't even know is even a Christian or a Presbyterian who's reformed? Dispensationalists read the Bible differently than we do, right? Um, Jehovah's Witness, you had Seventh-day Adventists who were involved in the public school system. Why would you want them to uh, read the Bible to your kids and teach them from the Bible. They would teach, some of them would teach heresy, right? So um, that was his reasoning. Machen, like other Southern Pro- Protestants, was a segregationist who opposed the admission of black students to Princeton Seminary, yet as a proponent of cultural pluralism, he championed bilingual primary and secondary school education in ethnic communities. Uh, specifically, I think they're talking about the Puerto Rican community in Philadelphia. On his spare time, when he had it, he would teach bilingual classes in, in Philadelphia. So a lot of quirkiness, a lot of irony. Uh, other irony is that he's a southerner who remains a northerner for most of his life, uh, after, um, uh, specifically after seminary 
and he would teach at Princeton, he would find Westminster in Philadelphia, and he would not go south back to Baltimore until uh, his death and his body is transported and buried in Baltimore. Uh, like other fundamentalists, he opposed women's suffrage, but at the same time, unlike northern Protestants, Machen was a lifelong member of the Democratic Party, and in 1928, he was one of the few Protestants, northern or southern, to vote for the first Roman Catholic presidential candidate, Al Smith. Remember, that was a lot of the uh, paranoia uh, behind um, the fundamentalist movement. There was a paranoia that Roman Catholics were going to take over the U United States and that the Pope would be the next president. And I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. That's not... Uh, that's probably not really what they feared, but there, there were fears that the Pope was going to take over somehow politically. Um, so that was just a, a recap, a quick recap of some of Machen's views from last week. And, and that is so that we do not, we're not tempted to put any one Christian or Machen for that matter into a nice tidy box um, with a checklist and, you know, all Christians agree on this and this and this and this. I mean, there's books written about it that, you know, how Christians should all agree on the uh, terms of welfare, for instance, uh, and those kinds of things. But that's not the case. Um, from one Christian to another, you'll have varying views on a varying list of topics. And we shouldn't just try to put Christians into the same box and exclude others as heretics if they don't fit that box. Um, how we judge heresies a little different than how we disagree with someone who has varying views. Um, so a, a lot of what was happening in the U.S. and uh, around the world had an effect on the church. And this is pretty much what I was trying to get at last week. Uh, you had Woodrow Wilson, who was a childhood friend of Machen, who was seeking to unite the world. Uh, the League of Nations was being started. Um, and his efforts uh, to summarize, now there's much more into it, this is a broad summary, uh, but he was trying to bring Christian, quote-unquote, civilization to the world um, to promote the spread of Christian culture, um, which Machen said that's not the role of the government. That's not the role of the government to do uh, at all. Um, and so he opposed that. And the ironic thing, as I pointed out, that Wilson was himself a biblical liberal. He, he didn't hold to the conservative views of the Bible uh, the way we do. And so it's rather ironic. He was pushing for this Christian culture, yet he himself was a liberal. Um, and at the same time in the U.S., the uh, church in the U.S., the Protestant church in the U.S., was trying to unite the church into one big church between Presbyterians, Anglicans, uh, Methodists, Congregationalists, you name it, uh, in order to stop the onslaught of Roman Catholic influence. That's basically what that was about. And um, uh, they were afraid that they were losing the culture uh, because many Southern Europeans were coming to the U.S. Um, and they were afraid that they were going to lose their grip on society and culture. Uh, we see this throughout the U.S. It wasn't just in the South. This was... Uh, across the United States. Um, and, and as it says here, Machen actually voted for the first Roman Catholic presidential candidate. He wasn't as afraid as um, the fundamentalists were. 
And so I tried to identify three specific groups um, that were around at the time. And each of these groups, Machen would eventually fight against at some point in his uh, career. There were the fundamentalists, the modernists, and the moderates. Fundamentalists, modernists, these are the liberals, and the moderates. And the major problem for Machen, uh, during the time of the writing of this book, and even post-1923, leading to the finding of Westminster Theological Seminary, were the moderates. It, was, it wasn't the liberals as much as it was the moderates who allowed the liberals to have a voice, both in the Peace USA and in, the, in Princeton Seminary. And the reason behind the moderates giving the liberals a voice was that they wanted to retain the Christian culture they believed they had lost. I shared this with a few of you. I, I don't think I taught. Maybe I did teach on it last week. But by this time, Machen said Western civilization was no longer Christian. And this was the 1920s. He, he, already, he said after the Civil War, it was gone. I mean, we're no longer Christian. Because he has a different view of what a Christian is, obviously. A Christian holds to fundamental doctrines and he defends those doctrines. Despite uh, the influence we might have in the culture. So in order to retain the Christian culture, uh, the moderates gave voice to the minority of liberals. Right? They weren't in the majority, in, in, neither in the PCUS or PCUSA or in, the, uh, in Princeton Seminary. And the reason was that they hold on to this Christian culture, or really it was Americanism. So kind of like a Christian nationalism. Uh, this Machen would oppose vehemently. Because they weren't spreading the gospel. They were spreading a culture. They are not the same. They are not the same. Spreading a culture, or even spreading the love of Jesus, is not the same as spreading the gospel. Um, Many moderates and liberals will say, why don't we just talk about Jesus and not all this doctrine stuff? There's not one sentence that you can make about Jesus that does not mention doctrine. Right? Anything you speak about Jesus, there will be doctrine. Unless you have some isolated verses from the Sermon on the Mount. We've all heard the line, doctrine divides, but love unites. That's not true. That's not true. Because you can't have love based on a lie, right? So this is where doctrine is important. And at this time, um, the Peace USA began to send missionaries to the foreign mission field. Uh, and some of these missionaries who were ordained, it was a small minority, maybe just a couple, um, when they were ordained and they were being asked the very important questions uh, that come with ordination, they could not affirm the virgin birth of Christ. And yet they were still ordained and sent overseas. They didn't deny the virgin birth, right? It was very clever, but they couldn't affirm it, which to me is a denial, right? indirectly. And so this is what led Machen to form the Independent Board of Foreign Missions without the church's permission. And this is what he would eventually be disciplined for. 
See, he forsook influence in the culture for the sake of the truth, basically. Let's remember his background. Consider his background. Consider his wealth. He was a man of wealth, right? He was of an elite status. Woodrow Wilson would have dinner with his family growing up. You know, as a child, he would have Woodrow Wilson at his table. Woodrow Wilson would become the 28th president later on. Uh, They would vacation in Maine, right? The Machins would vacation in Maine with the Rockefellers, right? They They were a part of the elite establishment, the elite Protestant establishment in the U.S. But most of the establishment at this point became moderate when it came to doctrine. Moderate, maybe Arminian. And they wanted to join sides or, or team up with the liberals because, you know, you had things like evolution and industrial, industrialization taking shape. You know, the Rockefellers were involved in that, uh, in, in the pro- progress of, of, of various technologies. And they wanted to hold on to the so-called Christian culture in America. And that's what led uh, to a lot of the open doors for false teaching to come into the church and into the seminary. And Machen forsook all of that. Forsook his status in society, in the culture. He, he probably would have been much more famous, much more wealthy than he is right now if he stuck around uh, with Princeton and with the PCUSA. But instead he forsook it all for the sake of the truth. So most Protestants at this time were leaning towards moderation for the sake of influence in the culture and that was the major problem. Lusan doctrine for the sake of influence. And I think that's why, and I'm saying this jokingly, but maybe seriously, this is probably why the OPC is so small. Um, Because we attract fighters who, who are constantly defending the truth. Sometimes a little too much, maybe, but we attract fighters and we're not willing to budge for the sake of influence or for the sake of a big church, right? You wanna, you wanna, you know, a massive-sized church, a, um, what do you call it, a, a celebrity church, go liberal, right? You just go liberal or even moderate. You might have a well-sized church, but the truth will probably won't be there for very long. Uh, I know of, um, quickly, of a OPC church who was very big at one point, and then um, a few of the elders who were more moderate wanted kind of a broader... Um, Confession of faith, maybe a broader doctrinal spectrum to allow for people who had different views to attend and not have their conscience, consciences uh, binded to you know, the Westminster standards. And the church split. And this other church, they took the majority of the people and they founded a kind of a mega church, mini, maybe a mini mega church, and you know, a couple hundred people, whatever. And they split two other times after that. Because everybody was a moderate. And they fought over their moderation or whatever. And they split. Because one elder was a, a millennial when it comes to the, uh, uh, the, the return of Christ. One was pre-millennial and one was post-millennial. And nobody, nobody was on the, really the same page. And so each elder took their group who agreed with them and they, they left the church. And, and so... Being a moderate is not always a good thing. 
Uh, sorry, we'll let that ring. Then I'll pick up. Um, so, but this my, mindset of being a moderate for the sake of influence, like I mentioned last week, is a mindset that goes back in the history of the Presbyterian Church. And to many of you, it may be a shock, it may be a surprise, but it goes back to the first and second Great Awakening in America. So, um, the first, I'll cover quickly the first Great Awakening. And what were the problems in the first Great Awakening? First Great Awakening was... um, well, in the Presbyterian Church, the, the problems arose when the Tenant brothers, um, who were in favor of the revivals, uh, were, were causing conflict over Presbyterian church government. So Presbyterian procedures, how we ordain ministers to, to gospel ministry. Um, and as I know, it's very rigorous. Um, there... You can read it in our book of church order towards the back. There are certain levels of education the minister must have in order to be ordained. And um, at the time, in I believe 1729, uh, a man by the name of John Thompson was the leading voice of the Adopting Act. This is where Presbyterians were... Um, were required, Presbyterian ministers were required to subscribe to the confessional standards of, of the church, the Westminster standards. Um, and the Tenant brothers would oppose this vehemently. They, they did not like this. Because to them, to them, as I mentioned a few weeks ago in a sermon, uh, a little tangent of mine, um, don't worry, I've removed ta- tangents afterwards, but in my tangent, I, um, I mentioned that they said that this would quench the work of the Holy Spirit in revival. Now, was that true? I'm not sure if that was true. Uh, there's various evidences that prove that it wasn't true. One, uh, there was a pretty thriving Presbyterian church already in America, uh, especially along the East Coast. Philadelphia was probably where we have always been, even now, the strongest is the Philadelphia area. Uh, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's the water or whatever. Um, and, and for some reason, New York, New Jersey, New England always poses a problem. For some reason, there's always a problem uh, up, up by this way. And so, John Thompson, he, 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 um, he was the leading voice in the Adopting Act that required ministers to adopt or to subscribe to the Westminster Standards. The Tennant brothers opposed and this led, the, uh, I believe Gilbert Tennant, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Gilbert Tennant wrote the famous sermon, The Dangers of an Unconverted Ministry. And I know many in the broadly Reformed camp would see this sermon as a great sermon of revival. You know, this, this brought many fruits of revival, even though it's actually an attack on the Presbyterian Church. Um, and, and that sermon did pose a problem. Because it was written out of bitterness. We, we talked about, you know, Bill Dad's, Bill Dad's uh, sermon from Job 18. It was out of bitterness and resentment that he, he spoke to Job in that way. Uh, and I, I think that's a bad thing, right? And so, and later I think Gilbert Tennant would e- even apologize uh, by the time there was a reunion 
uh, between the two sides. Uh, so the two sides, um, you had the old side, right? This is first great awakening. You had the old side, and then you had the new side. Old light, you often hear it, and new light. Old light were the, uh, those who opposed revivals, and the new light, those who were for. So those who were influenced by um, Jonathan Edwards, uh, George Whitfield, uh, the Wesleys, they were on the new side. But the old side who oppose, you rarely hear of their names, and I, I found a few names. The major name is John Thompson. John Thompson has a lot of great work, never republished. And I, I'm hoping, I'm on a mission right now to have that, have that done away with and have his work uh, republished. Um, because usually when we hear of the first great awakening, we hear there was a con- conservative, gospel-believing side and a liberal side. But that's not the case at all. Uh, you had Unitarians maybe opposing the great awakening, uh, the, 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 the revival. But no, the case is actually the new side were the proto-liberals. It were the revivalists who were, who were the liberals. Because, remember, Tennant didn't want ministers to subscribe fully to the confessional standards. He wanted to give them freedom and to come to those doctrines on their own. Well, but that's what we call training for, right? And they wanted to make training much easier so we can get more ministers out, more influence, right? That was the point. Dumbed down doctrine for the sake of influence. And this is why they united on various denominational fronts. Actually, the Presbyterian Church and the Congregationalist Church at one point, these are the new siders, they wanted to unite into one denomination. Imagine the chaos that would have brought about just on church government. Uh, completely different forms of church government and how we govern the church. Um, and also they were forcing uh, members of churches to um, give not a credible profession of faith, but a credible conversion story. This is where the conversion story movement really started, was the first great awakening. Your conversion story had to meet the standards of the minister, right? Rather, you know, in the OPC, we practice a credible profession of faith. We acknowledge that people come to faith in many different ways, all by the operation of the Spirit, of course, all being born again, but in different ways. We don't have this kind of a blueprint in the Bible that, you know, everybody must walk the Damascus road of Paul. Well, no. Some are like Isaac. There's no conversion story of Isaac. He was raised in the covenant household, catechized, right? He was taught the scriptures, and he came to faith probably at a very young age without remembering it, right? The work uh, of being born again is not up to you. It's up to the Spirit of God working in them. So, and this is why I encourage children, if you believe... It's not up to your parents to tell you when it is time to make a profession of faith. It's up to you. Uh, it's your faith, not, not your parents' faith, right? Um, and kids can come to faith at a very young age. Um, 
So, and that's why in the church we do not put limits on age when it comes to uh, coming to faith. Um, and so, uh, so these are the major differences between the old side and new side. The old side required ministers to subscribe fully to the confessions and catechisms. Of course, they allowed for scruples. Um, chapter 23 of the Confession of Faith was already in question by 1729. Uh, the, the role of the government. And are they expected to punish pagans? So thoughts of revolution and talks of revolution was already starting. And most Presbyterians supported the Revolutionary War. Okay. So this led to a split between the old side and the new side in 1741. Uh, they would split. Um, and the new side would form their own presbytery. The Presbytery of New Brunswick. Irony. It's laughing. Irony of ironies, right? That's the same presbytery that would discipline and excommunicate J. Gresson Machen. So the new side formed this presbytery of New Brunswick. Um, and I guess they remained the presbytery of dumbing down the, the doctrine for the sake of influence. Don't be so hard on doctrine. Right? And, and they thought Machen's fight was a little too extreme. He, he sinned in, in fighting against uh, the push for liberalism in the church. And so, 1758, they reunited. Again, I said this in the sermon that this kind of proved uh, the sermon that Gilbert Tennant wrote wrong. It proved it wrong because he agreed to reunite with those whom he called unconverted before. Right? So did he really mean it, is the question. Um, And also... The, and I didn't mention this earlier, I should have. If you saw my notes, it's a mess. So I'm everywhere. Take notes as you, as you may. But um, I, I mentioned it early, earlier that um, uh, there was many problems with the, the Gilbert Ten- Tennant's sermon. And one of, those, one of those problems was that he was not only... When, when you attack a minister in, in the Presbyterian church, right? you're not just attacking the minister you're also attacking the entire presbytery that laid their hands on him and, and ordained him. So when, you, when he accused John Thompson, that's who that sermon was about. When he accused John Thompson of being unconverted because he was sticking to Presbyterianism, when he accused him of being unconverted, he was also saying that the judgment of the entire presbytery was off. That their cognitive... Uh, they, they weren't all there cognitively. They couldn't tell if this man was converted or not. Because that, that was part of the problem. Was that um, the new side was rooted in what we call pietism. Uh, this was a movement that started in Germany. And made its way to places like the Netherlands. And made its way here through a Dutch reform minister. I believe his name is Theodore Freligason. Um, and he is the major revivalist who influenced Edwards and company. Um, and one of the problems with pietism, not piety, we're all for piety, right? Uh, we're all for piety, but there's a, a, a reformed piety that is different than pietism. In pietism, they pit faith against doctrine. 
You sound like you know the doctrine, but do you really believe? Right? There's this emphasis on faith and uh, someone who comes to faith quietly uh, and reads the Bible, uh, goes through the catechism, a simple faith, a quiet faith, that's not enough for the pietist. It's not enough that someone is seeking to obey God after coming to faith. Uh, they're confusing categories. Sanctification with conversion, right? Or, um, I know another problem was, doctrinally, was that they, there's what we call the ordo salutis, not sure how many of you know of it, but the, the order of salvation, how one comes to salvation. And under that umbrella, we have things like faith, repentance, regeneration. I'm going out of order here. Uh, justification, sanctification, glorification. But also, underneath that umbrella of salvation, there is conviction of sin. So what the pietists and you know, the new side, what they were teaching... In practice, they may not have believed it themselves, but they were teaching that conviction of sin was outside the ordo salutis. That the Spirit will convict you of sin, and you can be under that for months. And they would preach, that's a good thing. Stay there until the Spirit would uh, regenerate you. But classically in the Reformed camp, if you are convicted of sin, that's regeneration. You're being regenerate. You will come to faith. And the minister's role is to preach the gospel. If he is not preaching the gospel, he has no right to be in the pulpit. And this is why preparationism, a later doctrine that would come out of the Dutch Reformed, we would also uh, oppose And so here we are. What was the problem between the old side and the new side? The new side wanted to be loose on doctrine for the sake of influence, while the old side wanted to hold on to doctrine uh, and the the standards and require their ministers, not the lay people, but the ministers, to subscribe to the confessions and catechisms. Um, And again, this would arise again later on. And it's funny how it's always related to a war or something that's happening in society because you have the Great Awakening and what happened soon after was the Revolutionary War. Um, and, you know, Presbyterians will split again um, after the signing of the Declaration and uh, our Constitution. Uh, the Covenanters will split from American Presbyterians, right, uh, and they will go further west, uh, western Pennsylvania. Um, this is why they, they have a good establishment there. You, you have the, the RP Church, you know, their seminary is out, out that way. They come in the tradition of the Covenanters. We don't. The OPC doesn't. We came from the tradition of the American Presbyterians who were in favor of uh, the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. The reason why the Covenanters split was because neither documents mentioned Jesus Christ in the document. It wasn't a covenant um, with God. And so the American Presbyterians would would split uh, from the, or the Covenanters would split from the American Presbyterians. 
And then you have this lineage that would eventually lead to the finding of Princeton Seminary. These were strictly American Presbyterian ministers who, who would find Princeton Seminary. We know some of their leaders. Um, one of their presidents was a man by the name of John Witherspoon. If you know U.S. history, um, John Witherspoon was uh, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, the only Presbyterian minister to sign it. And um, he was very much uh, bivocational, I guess, or trivocational. He was the president of uh, the College of New Jersey, which would become Princeton. Uh, he was a politician, and he was a pastor all at once. I don't know how he did it, to tell you the truth. Um, uh, he, he has nine volumes of his collected works, which I have in my office. Excellent, sound, reformed theology. Uh, I'll tell you just by reading it. It's excellent. Um, and he was kind of a, a middle ground between the old and new side. The old and new side proponents all united together around him. And he would be one of the, the, the main leaders of Princeton. And so that's why Princeton... Uh, you would have some who would, who would favor the new side, some who wouldn't. Um, but they were all pretty much what we would call old school. Okay, Because the next split that would occur would happen in 1837, where the Presbyterian Church would split again over um, doctrinal issues. Not only doctrinal issues, but also it would be societal issues. Um, they would split over doctrine uh, between the old school and the new school. This is 1837 till about 1869, where they would unite again. Um, but again, the old school would, would oppose that union. Um, 1837 to 1869, this is around the time of the Second Great Awakening. So you have this revival again. Uh, but this time, much more Arminian in its doctrine, even more doctrinally unsound. And you had uh, those who opposed the Second Great Awakening from the old school, specifically Princeton Seminary. You had um, Charles Hodge um, and his company at the time, who would uh, be the leading voice against um, the new school uh, led by Charles Finney, who was a Presbyterian but he was pretty much an Arminian in his doctrine. And uh, there were others from other backgrounds, you, you know, D.L. Moody and, and the like, who were pro-revival while um, Charles Hodge was against revival. Um, and there were certain characteristics between the two um, that you can easily differentiate. So the old school... They were big into doctrine. Uh, ministers had to subscribe to confessional standards. New school, a little loose on doctrine. They wanted to allow freedom for Arminians to minister within uh, the Presbyterian Church and you know, other churches. Big on conversion experiences again. So conversionism coming out once again. Not church member membership, by the way. Okay, so they weren't, they were losing the church membership conviction by this time. And um, at their reunion in 1869, Princeton would fight against, I, I think they, they wrote a pretty hefty book on why uh, Presbyterians shouldn't unite with the new school. Okay, uh, and um, 
It was mainly doctrinal. And remember, this is around the time that tongue speaking came out again. It was during the Second Great Awakening. And so you, you see that forming again. Um, and also, they were loose on doctrine, but they were also heavy on social and political issues. They were heavy on social and political issues. This is the new school. They were activists for the most part. And this is why they would, they would preach from the pulpit abolition. Right, the abolition of slavery. Um, uh, they would um, preach that you know, you know, every true uh, Christian would join the, the union, right? Those kinds of things, and join Abraham Lincoln in, in his fight. And um, post Civil War, they would say, "Hey, we're a union again. Let's reunite." So the, the union between new school and old school, according to the new school, they were uniting on socio-political and societal cultural issues. Not doctrine. Not doctrine. It was over the fact that, you know, the North and the Union have won the Civil War, we have abolished slavery, and we can now unite again. Because wasn't that the original issue? No, it was over doctrine. And Hodge would come out vehemently against union, uniting over societal issues. If anything, we ought to unite with the Southern Presbyterians over the doctrine that they hold and those who were Confederates, right? A lot of Confederates had sound doctrine. Hodge himself was a a unionist, right? He was for the union. But he said we should not unite over political or societal issues. We ought to unite over doctrine. Uh, another rabbit trail. This whole thing is a rabbit trail. It's okay. But I have another rabbit trail, a little bit of history here. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, um, in his time during the war, he attended a Presbyterian church for years um, during the war. And... Um, The interesting thing to note is what kind of Presbyterian church he attended uh, in the north, right? Um, You would think it would be a new school church, right? You know, the new school, they were preaching abolition from the pulpit. They were preaching on societal issues from the pulpit, saying, we got to join this movement. He would feel rather flattered, right? But rather, he said, and this is his own words, he found solace in an old school Presbyterian church. Why? Because that's where he heard the minister preach the sovereignty of God and how he is sovereign over all these affairs. He didn't hear that in a new school church that was preaching activism. We got to be active. In the old school, they preached the sovereignty of God. And, and this comes out later in his speeches, right? The Gettysburg Address speaks of God's sovereignty and providence. So that's an interesting bit of history to note about Abraham Lincoln. And so all this to say, my point is that there is a lineage to this way of thinking. And it goes back to the old side, new side debate. And then followed up in the old school, new school debate. And then in Machen's struggle uh, against the PCUSA to later find Westminster Theological Seminary and find the OPC. Uh, So 
quickly to clarify my terms, because I know terms can be misunderstood. When I mention evangelical, I'm not talking about evangelism. I'm not critiquing evangelism. When I'm critiquing the evangelical movement today, I am critiquing the post-World War II Protestantism of America. Okay? Which is non-traditional, non-denominational. They do not hold to historic creeds or confessions. Because this was the same problem in Machen's day. Because what becomes this problem? The moderates. Compromise for the sake of unity. And the ironic thing is that many evangelicals are very zealous for evangelism and missions. But the problem is, if you're, if you're loose on doctrine, what is the point of evangelism and missions? Are you just spreading culture? And that, that's the question sometimes. I, I give to an organization that you know, helps um, people overseas. And um, I question sometimes, are they really spreading the gospel or is this just humanitarianism? Right? Is that what the gospel is? Do we share the love of Christ? Of course we do. Nobody's questioning that. But where is, where is the gospel? Where is the doctrine? Where is the church? Right? You evangelize, and this is why you know, open-air preaching is kind of, okay, fine. But are you pointing them to the church? Because this is where the ordinary means are. This is where they worship. Because the point of salvation is not to just get them saved. That's not the point of salvation. The point of salvation is so that these saved individuals will worship and praise God. Right? Philippians chapter 2. To the praise of His glory. That's the point of salvation. So if you're not pointing them to a gathering where they will properly worship God, what's the point of it all? And this is why Machen would emphasize the church in Christianity and liberalism. Uh, but again, uh, characteristics of the modern-day evangelicalism uh, or the modern-day evangelical is revivalism, not doctrine. Cultural change or Christianizing society, uh, big tent, go big or go home type of you know, church. Uh, you, it's either going to be big or it's not going to be effective. Right? We're not going to have any effect on the culture. That's not the point of the church. It, th- th- that's not what we're here for. We're here to preach and share the gospel whether or not we affect anybody. Right? Even if persecution comes our way and we're crushed, what did the Lord promise? Hell will not prevail. And so, um, and and that was uh, Machen's mindset. He said, forget influence. Forget the prestige that I might have. We're fighting for the truth. And even if that means whatever, Um, I don't know if I mentioned it last week. He was wealthy. He had an inheritance. All of his inheritance, I would say, except for his fancy cars. He he, he collected cars. Uh, But besides his fancy cars, all of his inheritance was used to pay for all of his students' tuition from the time he founded Westminster to the early 1970s, after his death. That's where his heart was. His heart wasn't in influence, and he didn't gain much influence. Um, He's not that popular among most Protestants. Most Protestants don't know who he is 
but they, they did, did the numbers that if Machen didn't do what he did, there would be no surviving conservative seminary at all in the country. So, um, pretty important, but definitely undervalued. Um, also, as I argued last week, and I'll be closing here in a minute, Machen was also not a fundamentalist. He said he would rather be called a Calvinist. Uh, a Calvinist at the time was much more uh, narrow. Uh, today, you have, it's a very broad definition. <laughs> uh, so we, I would probably narrow it down to a Presbyterian confessional Protestant. And he was not fighting for cultural or societal issues. He was fighting for the church. He was not fighting for cultural change. He was going against the culture, against the grain of the culture, even the Christian culture of the day. Um, though he was politically savvy, so don't get me wrong. He, he was. He, he fought many battles on the, on the floors of uh, various congresses. And so uh, he, he was politically savvy, fought against big government uh, when it came to society and the culture and, and you know, in, in politics, but he never brought it to the pulpit. Uh, the church is not meant to be political or meant to grant, uh, give political pronouncements on societal issues of the day, unless, of course, it is sin. But remember, sin is spiritual, not political, right? Uh, the, the world has now politicized sin, um, and we do make pronouncements on sin. Um, but he wasn't hung up on societal issues the way fundamentalists were. He wasn't hung up on evolution. He, he, I'm pretty sure he thought it was wrong. I haven't read much on him on evolution because he didn't say much on evolution at all. Um, and he was, he, he was opposed to prohibition, as I mentioned before. He, he didn't see any use in picketing, right, to get rid of alcohol. Um, just, I mean, just imagine Jesus or the apostles picketing anything. Their message wasn't even, didn't even make it to Caesar, right? They didn't storm Rome, right? To say, you need to change your act. Rather, the message went to the people first, God's own people, to the Jews. Then it went out to the Gentiles, right? That was the order of things. Could you, could you imagine a, a, a wedding where someone was complaining that they ran out of grape juice. Right? Fundamentalists teach that, you know, wine back in Jesus' day was really grape juice. But I'm like, why are they complaining that they ran out in, at the wedding of Cana? Right? I would have said, just crush up some fruit, put it in there, add some sugar, you're good. Why, 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 why would Jesus have to turn water into wine? So, and I made this point before, Jesus drank in public. Others will say Christians should not drink in public. Jesus drank in public. Right? For the sake of the weaker brother, yes. But we don't govern the church based on the weaker brother, do we? Colossians 2. Paul says, do not let anyone oppose you over what you eat and what you drink. The problem with fundamentalism is, or was, was that the weaker brother took control of the church. Right? And 
gave the church all these legalistic demands that they must follow in order to keep a Christian culture or keep an influence in society. There was legalism on one side and moderation on the other. Loose on doctrine, legalistic when it came to societal, cultural issues, or even political. So, uh, to wrap up here, um, he not only defended the Bible, but he also, also how we interpret and apply the Bible. In doing this, he not only upset the liberals of his day, but also the conservatives of his day. Because although modernists and fundamentalists were fighting against each other when it came to the Bible, they both had the same tendency, and that was to make the church a means to an end, rather than an end in itself. Right? The church was used as a means to an end by both liberal and moderate conservatives, rather than an end in itself. The church was being used at the time as a vehicle for social change and social progress, which to them was to establish the kingdom of God on earth. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? So what fundamentalists and liberals had and still have in common is that they have a low view of the church and viewed the church as useless if we are not tackling the cultural and societal issues of the day. A year after the OPC was founded, it would split again. Well, split for the first time. Um, In 1937, it would split over the issue of alcohol, smoking, and dancing. Uh, I'll let you guess what side Machen was on in the OPC. we saw nothing wrong with any of these in moderation and, you know, with decency, of course. So in practice, you couldn't really tell the two sides apart, the liberal or the conservative. Though the fundamentalists would claim him as their own, he wasn't a fundamentalist in practice. He was a reformed and confessional Protestant and staunchly Presbyterian. He not only opposed biblical liberalism, but also the legalism coming from the biblical conservatives or fundamentalists. He would find himself in trouble post-1929 with with the fundamentalists. He fought for a confessional interpretation of the Bible. But to introduce uh, the book, Christianity and Liberalism is a book about fundamentals of the faith. Uh, Let me draw your attention to some of the uh, topics that we will be discussing going forward. So next time we meet, we will be discussing his introduction, uh, which he gets into a whole load of topics. Um, Then we will go on to doctrine. Um, Well, actually, next week, uh, Mr. Wayne Moore will be covering God and man. So we're going a little out of order because of unforeseen circumstances. But I will come back and summarize a lot of what he said and uh, get you back on track. Uh, Then we will go on to his chapter on the Bible, Christ, salvation. And all these most fundamentalists would be in agreement with Machen until you get to the seventh chapter. And that is his chapter on the church. And that chapter is not meant to be an appendix, right? It is highly important to Machen. And that is the doctrine of the church. For Machen, the the church was not a means to an end. It was an end in itself. What are we all going to do in glory? We're going to be gathered as a church, worshiping our triune God. Right? This is part of what made 
Machen different from both liberals as well as conservatives, conservatives of his day. He opposed liberals for taking away from the truth of the Bible and conservatives who were adding legalistic requirements to the Bible. While at the same time, the fundamentalists were ignoring some fundamentals of the Bible, such as the church. And that is the same mistake being made today. 